Thanking you. Um, I'm excited um, to be a part of what God is doing. Um, it's a pleasure and an honor uh, to be known by him and to know him at the same time. You know what I'm saying? Father, we thank you for um, your word, which is truth. Um, it is trustworthy. Um, we don't have to second guess it. Um, our belief doesn't make it trustworthy. It's trustworthy without our belief. But your word does make our a belief into something. And so, Lord God, as we get into your word, I pray that we would connect to your word by faith alone, through Christ alone, through grace alone. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Um, we are um, ending, nearing the end of our um, series on uh, Jesus Christ and the life of, and um, we've been excited about um, just how God has graced us to go through the lives of many characters, some, um, some who are known and some who are uh, um, unknown. Um, today, we're going to dive into a character um, that um, I, haven't, I, I, haven't, I haven't heard preached on much, but most of the time referenced to. But what we're going to talk about this particular character reminds me of something that I kind of always like to do in my leisure. I like to, I like to find out what drives people. You know, I'm, I'm always interested, especially people who got man's understanding of success or have even God's understanding of success. I, I'm always, I'm always um, curious to know what motivates their hard work, um, where they came from, and how did they get. Like, I'm all, I used to like that show Driven. Um, on VH1, I used to like to just watch it to see different people and how they came from the gutter and came from nothing and how they ended up having a passion for a particular road or goal um, in mind. Um, and we live in a society, though, where people are driven by so many different things. You know, as I watch the show, you know, so many people are, are driven by um, their own success. Um, many people are dri driven by not being broke anymore, you know what I'm saying? Being broke is frustrating, so the only other option they had to do in their mind was be driven to not be broke. So the driven to succeed was driven by um, a burden not to be broke. Um, many were driven by the frustration of a, of a jacked up household. In other words, I, I, I want to get out the crib. I know when I left D.C. in 1991, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to get out of D.C., was because it was just too much killing in my neighborhood going on. I was sick of the sirens for the minute. I said, yo, I want to dip out of here for a minute because I'm sick of seeing five, 600 cats get smoked a year. So I was, I was kind of like, yo, I want to get up out of here. But everybody's driven by something in particular. And what's interesting is, is that when you're a Christian, when you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are supposed to be driven by one thing and one thing only, and that's God himself. No matter what the desire is, no matter what the passion is, it must be brought into subjection under the Lord um, God himself. But the character we're going to talk about is a bit of an interesting character, my man Samson. Samson is, is probably one of the most um, mind-boggling characters I've ever come across within the Bible. And the thing that's going to blow your mind, and we're going to read it later, Especially when you go through his story, that Samson, that Samson is mentioned as one of the great heroes of the faith. And for anyone that's even familiar 
with Samson's story, it, it kinda it's kind of going to throw you off when you see how gutter this cat is. My man is gutter. Gut, for those of you who don't know what, what gutter means, let me explain gutter. It's not gutter. It's gutter. You know what I'm saying? Gutter, you got to up that joint. You know what I'm saying? Gutter, not gutter. Because um, they know where you're from if you say gutter around here. So gutter. And so he's gutter. You know what I'm saying? He's a, he's a dude that's, that's just grimy. He's a grimy. I don't know if this dude was muscular, musty, hairy. You know, I don't know. You know, everybody want to make everybody black in the Bible. I don't know what particular. But I, he had long hair. He had some type of locks. So I don't know if he combed his hair. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I mean, he's just a rugged dude. You know what I'm saying? You're going to see the story. But what's interesting is his birth in chapter 13 of Judges um, shows us that um, the, uh, the, the pre-incarnate Christ showed up to his mama. Her, she goes unnamed, but her husband goes named. His name is Manoah. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them telling them that they were going to have a child and that he was going to be used as a judge in Israel. And so uh, uh, one of the things that he told them was that he was going to be a Nazarite. Say Nazarite. A Nazarite, um, based on Numbers chapter 6, we won't go deeply into it, was a person that took a vow for a short period of time. So usually a person would say, for a purpose of consecration or, or for purpose of something I'm dealing with in my life or for purpose of greater nearness to God, I want to set aside a particular season of my life um, to really focus on seeking God. So people would take what's called a Nazarite vow. The main point of the Nazarite vow in relation to its stipulations was really a few things. You, you couldn't be snipping on your head. You had to, you had to, you had to you know, let your 5 o'clock shadow get, get thicker if you were a dude. You, you know what I'm saying? You, you couldn't, if you were a lady, you couldn't deal with your split ends to after, you know what I'm saying, the vow was over. If you, if you, you just had to let the joint grow out, you couldn't be fooling with your hair. Um, you couldn't drink any wine. You couldn't touch anything off of the vine. I mean, there was a, I mean, you couldn't touch anyone, any dead corpses, anything like that. And so, because you were focusing in on this vow that you had made for the Lord to complete any type of vow that you were uh, particularly asking the Lord for some or vowing um, something to God for a particular opening time and a closing time. But there are few people in their life, like Samson, that was commanded by God to have a lifetime Nazarite vow. And so this guy from a little kid had to grow up and not have a razor on his head. So like some of us, you're going to have kids and you're going you're to be excited about your kid's first haircut. Samson didn't experience his first haircut. He never got a shape up. He had to go through life just growing. I don't know how long his hair was, you know what I'm saying? But my man had a life um, that, was, that was focused on him being set aside for God's particular purposes uh, to deliver Israel. Now the word judges in the book of Judges can be a little confusing. Because most people, when they hear the word judge, think legislation or they think um, magistrate or a person that brings down decisions on a particular group of people. Well, the word here for judge isn't the usual word that we would understand judge as. It's a word that means to deliver, to deliver or to cleanse. And so these group of people were brought about during a particular uh, time in Israel's period of about 410 years, the time of judges went on. And there was a cycle in every single judge's life. Number one, in the judge's life, Israel would, go, would do something evil in the sight of the Lord. Then from there, God would allow them to go in under oppressors. 
Then number three, um, Israel would serve for X amount of years, and then they would cry out to God, and then God would uh, raise up a deliverer, a judge, and then the, um, the, the spirit of the Lord will be upon the deliverer, and then the oppressors get plundered, the people of God get free, and then they have rest for a particular period of time. So all of the judges' cycles went through this particular cycle where God allowed these seven, the seven-stage cycle to go through. Every time, every time there was a judge that came through, um, people would trip out on God, and then God said, you want to trip out on me? I got your number. Plat out. Put them under something. People would get the tripping, and then they would say, God, we need you again. God would deliver, and the cycle will go on again. And we'll see this same cycle in the life of my man Samson. In this time of the judges, the Bible talks about the fact that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, everybody individualistically became an authority on what they wanted and what they wanted to do. So it was a time period of spiritual, sociological, and political anarchy. So people fell back. People fell back from listening to the word of God anymore. People kind of said, well, I think, well, I think. It was a lot of I thinking, which we're going to talk about in the life of Samson. And so as we talk about my man Samson, we're going to talk about Jesus Christ in the life of Samson, the God-driven life. The God-driven life. Samson when you read his story, will seem to be everything but God-driven. Let's read a few verses, and we're going to explain through a whole bunch of things in this story. And I think we're going to have some nice, uh, gorgeous things to apply to our life. Verse 1 of chapter 14, it says, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. Dang. Got her. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people um, that you might go and make her wife for your, among the, uh, you got to make a wife for yourself under the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in your boy's eyes. Wow. Talking about gutter. My man is gutter, which brings me kind of to my first point. If you're going to have a God-driven life, you have to understand, I just got one point today. And we're going to just support that point through the text. Just one point I think the text has given us. God wants us to be driven rightly. God wants us to be driven rightly. It's interesting in this passage that as you look at my man Samson, you'll see that he'll be anointed by the Spirit with power. You see him doing great works. But it's interesting how throughout the passage, Everything that Samson is motivated by and driven by is something other than anything that God would have him to be driven by. And so to support this point, if you're going to have a God-driven life, you're going to have to be upwardly driven versus downwardly driven. You're going to have to be upwardly driven versus downwardly driven. Now, understand we're in a narrative passage. 
So when you're in a narrative, it, like Pastor Deuce was talking about last week, the principles don't necessarily jump out at you. You have to use particular Bible study methods to grab a hold of those principles. And, and if you look in at verse 1, it says, Samson went down, underlined down in that verse. Verse 5, it says, then Samson went down, underline it again. Verse 7, it says, then he went down. Then you look in verse 10, and it says, and he went down. And then in verse 19, in the early part of the B part of the verse, it says, and he went down. When you look at and understand these passages, and you understand how the writer is using this, down is not just geographically going down, but it's actually him going down in relation to the will of God. If you think I'm lying, if you turn to Jonah chapter 1, and it'll say that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and Jonah went down to Joppa. What was in Joppa? He was going away from the presence of the Lord. So in him going away from God's presence, he was not going up, but he was actually going down. In other words, you could be going up, you can be going north geographically, but before the eyes of God, you could be spiritually going south. Not only that, it said, then he went down to the belly of the ship. In other words, in relation to Samson's calling... In relation to him being one of the representatives of God to be, have a God-centered and God-driven life, his life was being marked by going down. And many of our lives are operating on the same path. In other words, because we're driven by our own passions... And when we're driven by our own motives and our own way of thinking and our own way of doing things, whenever we choose not to walk in God's directive, we're going down. How do we know he was going down in this passage? Well, Timnah was, one of the, it was going to be Judah eventually. God had promised it to the people of God. But my man, my man um, you know, um, Samson just went on a trip. I mean, he alone, ain't nobody with him. He just went down to Timnah. I mean, I don't know what he went down to do. But it was ruled by Canaanites, so everywhere around is people having sex on the top of mountains, uh, prostitutes trying to holler at you, dudes worshiping other gods. So my man walks down to Timnah, and you know, some of, it's like some of us, we say we just go into the mall, the window shop, um, but we never get to the windows, you know, because of what's in the mall. Are we going, I'm going down the, down the South Street to chill, and you go down the South Street, and you go in and look at it, dang, man, got to pray. You know what I'm saying? So you, you're in this environment. You're just going in there acting like you're really going to chill or really going to hang out, but not really knowing that you're going down. And so what he's talking about in this passage is he's talking about the structure and the position of my man Samson's life in relation to God. He wasn't going up, but he was going down. And what's interesting about the Bible, when we look at the New Testament principle, God always calls us to be driven by what's going on upwardly versus downwardly. In Colossians chapter 3, it says, keep your mind on things above where Christ is seated. In other words, our lives are supposed to be driven 
by our position and in, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ based on him who knew no sin becoming sin on our behalf and because he's seated at the right hand of God and because our identity is not in our self-esteem, not in our self-worth, not, not in us revving ourselves up by a motivational speaker that doesn't see Jesus as the motivation for our motivation. In other words, that's being downwardly driven. Without Jesus, if you're being fleshly motivated, you're being, um, you're being uh, emotionally thrown into a frenzy where you're actually going to be downwardly driven versus upwardly driven. My man Paul in chapter 3 of Philippians says, I press towards the mark of the upward or high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But see, this is the issue with understanding upward living versus downward living. See, God has a different view of up than we have. See, man's up is God's down. God's up is man. See, so, so, so we see a lot of times that sometimes you think you're going further in life and you're not going further because God's desire for what he wants for you has nothing to do with the motivation and the reasoning behind where you're going in life. And so the center of what we're supposed to be as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is we have to be working to be upwardly driven versus downwardly driven. And so you see that his downwardly driven, downward drivenness drove him to in, improperly influence his mom and dad. In verse 2, it says, and his father went down to the woman. So you see, he, his downward drivenness also impacted other people around them and moved them from being upwardly driven to being downwardly driven. But then we see another piece in the text. We see another piece in the text. It says, the next thing, if you're going to have a God-driven life, is you have to be God-centered versus self-centered. God-centered versus self-centered. Look in the text. Verse 2. It says, I saw. Verse 3. It says, in verse 3, he says, now get her for me. And well, also, that's in verse 2 also. You see, in verse, you, you see all through here, Verse 6, chapter 16, verse 28, you see he's, he's saw. So he's driven by him, himself, and him. All you see in Samson's life is him saying, I, me, and me. So Samson is driven by him. When we look at this idea, many of us have a very me-centered perspective on life. And one of the things that our lives cannot revolve around is us. When we talk about, and I'm going to explain, I'm going to give a, a definition of God-centeredness. Because in this text, when you see that Samson is supposed to be judging and utilizing the gift that God had given him to the glory of Christ, he was only using his gift for himself, and he, and he was so passionate about what he was passionate about is that he was self-centered. Even at the end of the story, when he's, when, when the first time we hear my man praying, he's bound and he's blind and he had his eyes gorged out. And at the end he says, Lord, remember me. Be avenged based on me, Lord. And then he says, because my eyes got gorged out. 
So basically, his prayer wasn't having to do with his role as deliverer of Israel. It had more to do with him avenging for his own personal desires and his own personal purposes. One of the things that we always have to remember, even if you're doing ministry, you can do the right thing with the wrong motive. See, see, see many times you can, you, can, you can actually think you're just because you're in the right place doing the right things with the right people that you're being biblically motivated versus self-motivated. But the thing itself doesn't make you biblically motivated. God working in your heart through the Spirit's work in your heart, pointing you towards the biblical reasoning behind why everything is done is a proper motivation for everything. And so we see my man Samson is deeply um, driven by his own personal desires and his own personal passions, and that's causing him to be moved off of the path from being God-driven but to be self-driven. But then not only that, you see my man walking by, not walking by faith, but walking by his senses. It says, and he saw, again, it says he saw, verse 1. Verse 2, it says, and he saw. Verse 3, it says, my eyes. Because <laughs> she's right in my eyes. Verse 7 says she was right in Samson's eyes. Verse 15 says the people knew that he was so driven by his own senses that they asked her to entice him. That has to do with him being driven by his own personal senses. He saw, you see, twice. He says, get her for me now, so he's even temporally driven. Eyes, you see, twice. And what's interesting is this idea of senses is a large part of what's going on in the book of Judges that's calling God's people to walk left field of who God is. So you see um, my man Samson being a personification of what God does not want his people to be driven by, not driven by our senses, but driven by uh, of the spirit. And so one of the things that's in our lives that we see as believers is people tend to choose based on their own passions versus God's own passions. In other words, a person will say, I want to get married. But when they say they want to get married, they tend to not necessarily choose how God would choose. They choose how they want to choose. So they never actually open up the Bible and say, what does a godly mate look like? And let me line up my desires for a godly mate with what the, the Bible says. Not only do I want to be a godly mate to glorify God, but then I want to be godly also. So I want to make sure that the Lord is properly working these things in my life so that the person that I'm asking God for, we can meet with Jesus at the center. However, when, you, when you're driven by anatomy, when you're driven by gear, when you're driven by finances, when you're driven by geography, when you're driven by everything but what God is driven by, what's going to happen is you're going to put yourself into a frenzy. My man, my man Samson went down and was like, man, I want this chick because she's booming to me. And so he's totally, he's totally intoxicated with his own passions to the point where he won't even listen to biblical reasoning, which we're going to talk about. In a moment. And so you see Samson, 
Samson is driven continuously by a sense of, and you see the very thing that, that Samson was driven by. He said, she's right in my eyes. I like the way she looks. The very thing that Samson was driven by, God confronted it by allowing the Philistines to gorge out his eyes. And I'm just telling you right now, be very careful because God loves you enough to confront the thing that's causing you not to worship him the most. See, see, Samson was utilizing his eyes to make decisions, and God was like, I bet. You're going to use your eyes to make decisions? If you won't do my, I bet. All right, blat out. He anoints the Philistines, and when they grab your man after Delilah, um, after he goes through the riddle, and Delilah snips his hair off, and the Philistines come get him, they gorge his eyes out. What in your life is God going to have to gorge out for you to serve him? What in your life, what passion that's unredeemed, that the gospel hasn't gotten to yet, that God has to literally bring you through suffering and torture to get you on the same track as him. And let me tell you something. You will never win when you're trying to fight against God's passion for himself and your passion for you. Because his passion for himself is stronger than your passion for you. And I guarantee if you in an arm wrestling match with the King of Kings and the King and the, and the Lord of Lords, muscle tissue and bones are going to be broken because you can't win. So the issue is you might as well early your thing up, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and say, God, show your boy where I'm jacked up. Show your girl when I'm jacked up. And maybe I'm blind to where I'm passionate about everything but you. And God, wherever I'm blind, in my life, where I, I might seem like I think I'm passionate for you in a particular way, where I'm actually not, God, instead of gorging it out, show it to me so I can do it myself. Because whenever God has to do it, it's going to hurt a whole lot more. But let's talk about what it looks like to be God-centered. Because a lot of times, I, you know, people talk about God-centered this and God-centered that and Christ-centered and and that's good, but a lot of times I'm finding that people don't really know what that means. I, I, you know, I, I, I've been realizing that based on that, the people, people, that I, I put God first, who's the head of my household, um, to the pastors and the deacons and the, you know what I'm saying? Like, just because you said God first doesn't mean that God is center. And so the issue is, what does it look like for God to be center? Because we see in the life of Samson that he's walking everything oppositely of what it means to have a God-centered life. We see that he's driven by his senses. We see that he's driven by his own personal passions and his own personal desires. We see that he's, he's, he's downwardly driven versus upwardly driven. But what does it look like for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to have a God-centered life, to be driven by God-centered passions? Listen to this definition I tried to coin based on the scriptures. And I'm going to read some other ones. It says, it's when those who are in a relationship with God through Jesus see him as the focal point of their life based on who God is, Psalm 113.5, what he is most passionate about, Isaiah 37.32, and how he acts, Isaiah 48, 9. So in other words, God's centeredness is focused, is focused on 
a life that's focused, that God is the focal point of their life, that in every decision that they make in their life, they're not just meandering through life, but that you're praying about stuff. Like, you know you're not God-centered if you, if you just, Lord, I thank you for the day, blah, 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 and you wore that thing out because you really want to do what you want to do, and so what you do is you pray real fast through it just to say, did you, somebody asked you, did you pray about it? No, I ain't pray. I mean, yeah, I prayed about it, you know, but you ain't really labor in prayer because you were afraid how God might answer. But see, the God-centered person is saying, you know what, God, I, I want to do this, but I don't know if you want me to do this. And so... It's going to hurt. I hate that. I even pray like that sometimes. Sometimes I tell God, I say, God, I'm really scared to pray when I'm about to pray because I know how you are. <laughs> but God, I'm, I'm going to just open it up to you and allow, I mean, just do your thing. Ah, I'm hating to pray this, but I love you. And I know that you're going to basically make me start the class all over again if I don't do it your way anyway. So instead of playing catch up and having to get tutoring and, and all of that, I'm just going to go ahead in the beginning and Talk to you about how you want to do it. There, God, you got it. You got it. God-centeredness. I like John Piper said, he says, man is only God-centered if he believes that God is man-centered. In other words, if God is willing to take care of my needs, then I'll serve him because he'll take care. I'll, I'll be oil center on him. But really, when you're doing it that way, you're still at the center. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen. Check this out. But by its being rejoiced in. By its being rejoiced. See, when you talk about having a God-centered life and you look at Samson's life, Samson was driven by his own passion. And so many of us may want to see God glorified, but we don't actually have a fundamental passion for his glorified, for, for his, for in his glory to be enjoyed, and for us to say, God, I'm really liking you being glorified, not just seeing you glorified, and I want to delight in it. He says, when, he says, when those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. So he said, if we only see his glory, that's cool, because, but unbelievers see his glory. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, when a cat go outside, his invisible attributes can be seen by everybody, whether they acknowledge that it's God or not. So that's not necessarily a maximization of God's glory in anyone's life. One of you got to understand as a believer, your desire and your passion has to be that God's glory, you have to continuously pray that God would maximize his glory through your life. I remember in 1994... 1995, my first year of seminary. Um, I went to seminary because they wouldn't feed me fast enough. I was so hungry. You know, I was so hungry. I said, man, ain't nobody feed me fast enough. So I went to school because I sensed the call to ministry. But I was like, man, I got to get up in the frenzy. So I got up in the frenzy. But, but what was happening, I, I ran across a book that, that still to this day has shaped my understanding of God-centeredness. And it's a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. I was 22 years old, wet behind the ears, just walking with God about a year. <laughs> and I read this statement, and I've never forgotten it. It says, the ultimate foundation for our passion to see God glorified is his own passion to be glorified. God is central and supreme in his own affections. 
there are no rivals for the supremacy of God's glory in his own heart. <laughs> Dang, y'all missed that. God is not an idolater. He does not disobey the first and great commandment with all his heart and his soul and his strength in mind. He delights in the glory of his manifold perfections. So he is passionate about all that he is. So like he's not asking us to do something that he hasn't been doing. Because God is already passionate about himself. The most passionate here for God in all the universe is God's heart. So, so God is more passionate for himself than anyone else is. And so his command for our motivations to be, and to be biblically motivated by a passion from him comes from him. So when we talk about this idea of God-centeredness, we're talking, we're talking about the fact that we want every aspect of our lives to be centered on him, every motivation for schooling, every MC that has a motivation to rhyme, every person that has a motivation to be married, a passion to be married, a person that's aspiring to ministry. Aspiring, I tell church planters all the time, if, you're, if you want to plant a church because you're mad at your home church, please don't plant a church. Because if you're only, if you're merely angry with the church that you're in, then you're selfishly motivated because you think that you can do it better on your own, but you're thinking more about you than God's glory. Therefore, God won't use that. And so when we talk about this idea of God-centeredness, this is the focal point and the passion of every Christian's life is for us to make sure that we're nitpicky about our motivations. Some people say, you can't know your heart. Well, I believe that God will show you what your motivation is before and during the process. And, and, and what he'll do is he'll place you in trials to help your life to be way more God-centered. But then not only, not only God-centeredness versus self-centeredness, but also if you're going to have a God-driven life, you got to be responsive to biblical reasoning versus un being unresponsive to biblical reasoning. Look in the text. It says in verse 2, it says, And then he came up and told his father and mother, based on the woman that he saw, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. He says, Now get her for me for a wife. Now check this out. He says, But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all the people, that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. Well, see, most people, some scholars say, well, this was, this was sociological. You know, they were more thinking about their tribal heritage versus their spiritual heritage, thinking about Exodus. Well, I don't, I don't think that necessarily matters here because God can use either to point us in his proper direction. But in this passage, you see his parents Based on him trying to make a non-biblical decision in his life, his parents put to him the biblical cut off at the past to help him to be pointed to a more biblical-based decision-making process in him choosing a wife. Now, they put the Bible to him. Now, look at his response to them. He says, ah! He said, but Samson said, Yo, dad, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. In other words, dad, I don't care what the Bible says. I want her 
for me because my passion for her is greater than what the Bible says. You know, one of the most dangerous people you can run across is not a terrorist. That's not the most dangerous person you can run across. The, more dangerous, the most dangerous person you can run across is not a rapist, is not a serial killer. The most dangerous person that you could run across is a person that has their passions confronted with the word of God and they refuse the word of God. You're a dangerous person. See, 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 when, we, when it comes to being a believer, we supposed to, and if you're going to have a God-driven life, that means that when other believers bring up unbiblical things in your life, that you got to be willing to listen. Because what happens is most of us pre-make decisions, and when we are convicted by the Spirit to come to other believers to talk to them about what we already want to do, we pre-package our presentation. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You try to, you, you kind of know that God ain't with it in the first place. But what you do is you try to prepackage the product so that you could just say you were, you brought it to other people. But really, you know what I'm saying? You, you know what I'm saying? You try to throw a curveball in there so, so that they won't really put, like, see that you're not really on point. So you don't paint the opportunity like it really is. And so what happens is, is you say, you say, yes, okay, I'm cool. Well, well, well many of us, need to begin to have people in our lives that can tell us the truth and that we will open our stuff up to. Because what's dope about, what was, what's crazy about Samson is Samson said, like, like, the, like the Bible's cool and all that, but in this area, I want to do my own thing. And everybody, everybody has, everybody on the sound of my voice is in Christ has fallen under the regrets of not listening to godly counsel and following your own way and end up having to come back with your tail between your legs because you chose not to be God-driven in your decision-making. I heard somebody here recently, it blew my mind, where they, 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 they were waiting on a job for a real, real long time. They, they went to the interview, went to the training. They got in the training, and they saw that the company, a couple of people, um, saw that the company was actually telling them to lie to do what they were going, and they needed loot. Like, they needed money yesterday. But they went up to their potential boss and said, I can't do this, and explained to them why they couldn't do it. Now, most people would say, oh, you know, that's just the secular world. Let them do the dirty part, and you just kind of in your... Cr but see, that person was so scared of the Lord and willing to follow God's biblical guidelines that they were willing to take a financial loss if it meant they, they, they didn't want to move towards their own passions. And right after that, the Lord opened up the dream opportunity to do the work that they already wanted to do, but they didn't know that when they were making the decision. And many times, God is going to do something booming, and it's right around the corner in your life, but he allows testings to come to our life to see if we're really well he already knows but he wants to show us whether or not we're actually God-driven or self-driven in your life after many of you get through the honeymoon period of being in the faith which we're supposed to have joy the whole time of our Christian faith when you get through that period they are going to become particular testings that's going to test whether or not you're going to be God-driven in your life or self-driven you see that also in, you see also in um, the, the prohibition, they told him that he couldn't marry this lady. He still goes forth in his own passion and seeking an opportunity 
to be with her. But not only that, even, now let's check this out. His lack of decision to follow God always led to even worse decisions. Because you see here in verse, in verse 10, it says, His father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast for her. Well, you got to understand what this feast was. When he's preparing a feast, what he has to do in a wedding ceremony is he has to provide wine. Well, first off, he's already sinned because he's going and he's trying to get engaged to an unbiblical woman. But now he's, he's going to put on a ceremony which puts him into further sin, which now puts him in contact with him further breaking his Nazarite vow because they got to have wine there. Like it wasn't a party unless they had wine there, unless they had some bubbly in the mist, you know what I'm saying? And so because of that, you know, Samson is now going further into sin. Now look at what happens even as it is his unwillingness to, to have biblical reasoning, it leads him into further mess. Because look at right after that, it says, he says, so for the young men used to do. And it says, as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. So now that he's made an unbiblical decision to marry this woman, he's making an unbiblical decision to break his Nazarite vow, not only does he do that, but then he goes further and he develops unbiblical community. So they give him friends to hang with him based on the Philistines. And so now he's, I mean, you don't understand, like we underestimate what our unbiblical decisions will turn into. And so when we do that, you're in deeper than you ever thought you were going to be. But God is trying to get you and get all of our attention into saying, if you're going to be God-driven, the fruit of being God-driven will follow you. If you choose not to be God-driven and self-driven, then the fruit of being self-driven will follow you. And so you see continuously through the, through the life of Samson that he is motivated and passionate about what Samson is passionate about. But not only that, what's beautiful about this story is that God's sovereignty works amidst our failure to be humanly responsible. God's sovereignty works amidst or in the midst of our failure to be humanly responsible. Just because God is sovereign doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be responsible and responsive to his sovereignty. But look where I get this principle from. Look back in verse 4. It's, it, it, it says, his father and mother did not know, based on him trying to get this a Philistine chick, he says, his, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now, some people would say, well, no, God was allowing him to marry this woman. No, you got to understand what's going on here. God was already seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, and he didn't really need Samson to seek that opportunity against the Philistines. But despite Samson's unwillingness to submit to his calling that God had called him to, God still works through Samson despite Samson's responsiveness to him. And so we see that God's, God's seeking doesn't mean that, that, um, that he is powerless apart from Samson's act, but it displays the fact that God is powerful despite Samson. God's desire, of course, is fleshed out even though Samson did not have God's desires in mind. God's, listen to this, God's desire for his desires are stronger than our desire 
for his desire even when we desire his desires. Did you get that? I'm going to say it one more time. God's desire for his desires are stronger than our desire for his desires even when we desire what he actually desires. So even at your peak of you thinking you're killing it for God, God is still more passionate about it than you. If it's his desire, though. So some of us think we're more passionate than God. We think we're more passionate than God. But we see here, even in the midst of his sin, God is still going to get his. And still hold him responsible for his sin. So don't think, well, God, you got the glory that God ain't going to give you a behind whooping. Because God will still give you a behind whooping. Well, he got the glory despite of me. Yeah, but the belt is coming. And so don't think the fact that God still uses something doesn't mean he won't get after you because he got to teach us a lesson so we won't think that we can just get away with murder. You know what I'm saying? So God did not entice Samson, but God still uses the willful sin of man to produce his desired ends. When you look at Genesis 50, 20, remember we were talking about Joseph and Joseph said, don't be angry at yourselves. He says, for God sent me here. And he said, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Even though you had evil intentions in selling me into slavery, God was using that slavery for his greater glory. And so we see the same thing in this passage where, where God is altered, like whatever God decrees, whatever God, like he's going to get his glory. The issue is whether we're going to be on the right or wrong side of it. See, that's the key. I don't want to be like, I, but I, I tell you what, one of my greatest fears is that I'm the person that people say that about. That, that they say, you know, he meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Like, I think that's the worst testimony on the planet. That, that I know that God has to use us despite of us anyway because of Christ. But I don't want to be on the wrong side with just making some old wilding out decision and God uses it as a conduit for somebody else's fame for God to get. Now, I don't want it to be that. I want to, I, want to, I want to be in the place where I'm in the proper place based on God's working, that, that God will work even through me. And we see this beauty on the cross. You see on the cross that Jesus was lied on. He was murdered. He was framed. He was crucified, yet in the same way God used the sinful acts of the murderers to fulfill his desired ends. The Bible says, and the Lord was pleased to crush him. So when you look at the idea of this, like God still got glory even though the people murdered Jesus Christ, but God through his plan ultimately wanted Christ to be a sacrifice for sin. So even though on this end, people weren't properly responded um, to God because they weren't um, God-driven, God still gets the glory out of what he wants to do. So Jesus Christ, ultimately, Samson failed. Jesus Christ is the ultimate deliverer and the ultimate judge. And so we see Jesus Christ portrayed as the true judge. In Judges eleven twenty seven, it said, let the Lord be the judge. So ultimately, the Lord is the greatest judge and greater than our friend Samson who failed. Jesus in the New Testament is the one who God has handed all judgment over. Jesus said, the Father has handed all judgment over to me. And so now we see the beauty of the fact that every judge, every judge in the book of Judges 
only judged and allowed for deliverance on temporal circumstances. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate judge, who's the ultimate deliverer, is he delivers beyond human circumstance. And so we see Jesus as ultimately um, the most God-driven uh, human being that ever lived on the planet. And so I'm not asking you to be like Samson. We see, we see his life as, as, as in some way, shape, or form redemptive. And what blows my mind is Hebrews chapter 11, what it says about him. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says in verse 32, it says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, this is weird, Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, check this out, what he says about the summary of these, this crew, he says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the, fire, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Wow. I'm, a, I'm a mesmerized and amazed that in the midst of Samson's godlessness and God-drivenlessness, that somewhere through the cracks and crevices, there was faith. I'm I'm, I mean, I'm blown away for, uh, by that and the Bible calls him one of the heroes of the faith and at the end I don't know what was going through Samson's mind it says that Samson used to run around entertaining people he became the, the dude that used to like the dude that put on like he he took the head of an animal and used it as brass knuckles to beat up an army the, the dude that was beating up large crews of people as it being used as a judge despite his work. At the end, had his eyes gorged out, no eyes, and people had to send him around and, and he began to, he began to uh, uh, entertain people in the house of the Philistine kings. And at the end, my man Samson says a prayer and he asks for God to avenge. But what's beautiful about this is God already wanted for his glory to bring deliverance for his people so that he would be a picture of, of Christ dying, just as Samson died to save God's people. And, all, and, and he was killed along with all of the others, and he was taken and even buried. Even that picture, as daunting and jacked up as it was, was a picture of Jesus Christ who would ultimately give his life for the deliverance 
of his people. And so I pray today that Christ would give us the grace to have a deeply saturated, God-centered, motivated life. That every motivation for resources, every motivation for everything, that God empowering us by his spirit would help us to be properly motivated. Maybe you're in something now and you know it didn't begin with the proper motivation. Well, begin asking God to give you the grace to be married to his motivations, be married to his desires, to be married to his passions. Because when our lives are, are, are married to his desires and when our lives are married to his passions, it, it, it overwhelmingly changes other people's lives, but ultimately our lives are changed. So our prayer is, is that at Epiphany Fellowship, that we wouldn't just do cool stuff, but by the Lord's grace, that everything that we would do would be biblically motivated, that the word of God would be behind it, that the power of God may be behind it, that we would be proud as we start cipher groups. It won't be just to grow numerically, but it will be to develop and be driven by God's passion to see us missionally engage the region. When we do CCC, asking God not just to get a bunch of hype MCs on the block to do something cool so a bunch of people can show up but for the passion of the fact that God's passion to see people engage with the gospel of peace would happen. I pray that no matter where you are in life, whether you're old or young, that you would start wrestling. Never get to the point where you don't wrestle anymore, where you don't wrestle through whether or not you're properly motivated by what God is motivated by, Why, that, that you're meticulous about saying, God, I want to be on the same trek as you. I don't just want to wander through life doing stuff. I don't want to meander through life. Just, just, I, Lord, I want to be smack dab in the middle of your perfect, unadulterated will for my life. And I want to walk with you in the midst of struggles. I want to walk with you in the midst of frustrations, no matter what. And I don't want to change the motivation, even if uh, changing my motivation gets me something that I want. God, I'm willing to subtract what I want off the table to get what you want me to have and to be all that you want me to be so that others are engaged by your peace so I pray that we would engage one another if we see one another not walking by biblical motivations that we will challenge one another on it if you see us going off the track but not being Christ-centered holler at us about it talk to us about it don't gossip about it talk to us about it I'm gonna say that again don't don't talk about it in the crevices and corners because nobody can grow through gossiping. They can only grow through you saying, I'm going to be biblical in my confrontation and make sure that as a body, we stay on the same track and saying, God, we want to be driven by your passions and your desires. Father, we thank you that you give the ability.